Let's take our Bibles this evening and turn to the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 2. Pick up our study there in verse number 17 tonight. We've been studying God's final word to His people in this last book of the Old Testament. Final word to the remnant kingdom in Judah. They had spent many years in captivity because of their sin, the 70 years. God had brought them back because of His faithfulness. They were restored to the land, not anywhere or anything near what they had been in the past with a a king, a kingdom, a nation. They were simply a small posted stamp province among the empires of man. But God had brought them back. Unfortunately, it would not be very long before, as we've seen, the worship of God would descend into complacency, into lethargy, into just straight-up corruption. Because without you know, a real king, no real kingdom, the promised Messiah is becoming, that whole idea, that concept, was becoming more and more of an unrealistic pipe dream you know, one that you're constantly hearing about, but it never actually takes place. And because of that, that's the book opens with the people questioning God's love for them. God said, I've, I've loved you, but you say, wherein have you loved us? They're questioning God's love for them. Their, their sacrifices, the sacrifices of the people, and specifically what was being allowed by the priests, the Levites, it was corrupt. And on their side, the, the, the people themselves, the Levites doing service to God, they were being wearied by that ritual. They were despising God's altar and, and dishonoring His sacrifice. They were bringing the ignorant, ignorant worship. They were br- bringing lame worship. They were bringing self-serving worship. And on top of that, as we talked about last week, there was rampant adultery among the people as the men divorced their Jewish wives and began seeking out marriages with younger women from idolatrous nations that were around them. In the book of Malachi, God is continuing to put His finger through His messenger, and that's really what even Malachi's name means, God's messenger. Through His messenger, He's confronting people specifically with their sin. And because of their attitude, it's not as if God had predetermined that, all right, this is it. This is the the final word. But you can see, based on their attitude and their response to what God had to say, this would be God's final word for 400 years of silence. God is capable of leaving us alone when we say this far and no farther. When we stop responding, as we heard this morning, to the light that God is bringing into our lives, when we stop walking with Him, God says, okay, you're comfortable. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to push. Maybe he'll allow some trials and troubles here and then to, to restart that. But as far as push, he's not going to push. My servant, my spirit will not always strive. And sometimes God leaves us alone. And that is a fearful place to be. And so God is going to leave his people alone because of their response to him. In the final verse of chapter 2, we find God pointing out yet another area of rebellion, 
amongst his people. Let's, let's read there. We'll start in the final verse of chapter 2 and read into chapter 3 because there is an objection that's raised. There is an issue that's raised by the people. And really, chapter 3, the first couple of verses, is God's response to them as he corrects them. Now, um, just as a, as a word of introduction before we get into this, the first couple of verses of chapter 3 will reveal a lot of, uh, of details surrounding both the, the coming of John the Baptist, uh, the tribulation period of time, which is yet future, as well as the millennial time, which is yet future. And we could kind of get lost in the details, and, and certainly you could, you could study some of these things. For time's sake, we're not going to do, do that because of this reason. There's a reason that God is answering the people in this way. He has a point that He is driving home. And I think it's the overall point that we need to hear tonight when we do what the people did and question God's justice. Look there in verse 17. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet ye say, wherein have we wearied Him? When ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner, and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you in judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the adulterers, and against the false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling, the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. And I think verse 6 is kind of, I've said all that to say this to you in answer to your question. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Let's open with a word of prayer tonight. Father, would you help us this evening? Lord, I need your strength. I need your wisdom. And Lord, I need your power. That only comes through the Spirit of God. And so I pray that you would fill me tonight. Bless the message as it goes forth. And I pray that it would have an impact on hearts and lives. I pray that we would clearly see and understand what you were trying to get your people to see and understand, that we would be able to detect, to see the same attitudes in our own lives as we see in the lives of the nation of Judah, your people. And I pray that we would not just see that parallel, but we would also learn from it and begin to apply that even in our own lives this evening. Bless this time. May you be honored and glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So here in this section, the final verse of chapter 2 into verse 3, but especially chapter 2, verse 17, we find the people questioning 
God's judgment. And the question that they're asking is, where is the God of judgment? Where is God's justice? Now, that's a question that in and of itself has been one that God's people have struggled with all throughout the Scriptures. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But, and it's a question that you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, from time to time, we struggle with this question. And, you know, when we're thinking about God and the way He does things and God's ways, we understand, as the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 11, verse 33, how unsearchable are the judgments of God and His ways past finding out. What God does sometimes is difficult for us to understand. And the reason is, He is God and we are not. We look at what He's doing and and we say, "I, I don't get it. I don't see what God is doing. How could He allow these things? Where is the God of justice? I'm not seeing it. And the reason why we're not seeing it is because we have a limited perspective compared to God's perspective. The problem becomes, not when we struggle with the question, not, not when, we are like, when we are having a hard time understanding what God is doing. The problem becomes when our questions turn into accusations. And that is what we see in this passage. When our questions about what God is doing, both in this area of thinking about God's justice, but really any area, when our questions turn into accusations, we wind up doing exactly what we see in this passage. And that is wearying God. God opens with the accusation in verse number 17 of of chapter 2, ye have wearied the Lord with your words. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Now, it starts here with an accusation from God Himself. We're going to see another accusation in just a minute. But God Himself is laying out the reality. You, my people, are wearying me and you're wearying me with your words. Now, I don't know if the people were running around actually saying this or whether or not it was the thoughts of their heart, but it doesn't really matter. All right, God knows the thoughts of our hearts. He knows He knew the things that the Pharisees were saying in their hearts. And God knows the thoughts of our hearts. And God knew the thoughts of His people. And God said, you are wearying me. Think about that statement and the the sentiment of that statement. You have wearied me with your words. Very interesting, just as a side note. In chapter 1 and verse 13, the uh, priests were expressing their weariness with God. And serving Him. What a weariness, they said. Serving the Lord. The reality was, they were the ones wearying God, not the other way around. Along with the entire nation of Israel. But this this accusation, you're wearying me, this is a serious accusation. The word wearied means to, to tire. To exhaust. Now, it's not that God gets physically tired. He doesn't get tired like we do. However, our our actions, the things that we do, have an, an impact on God. In fact, we see that God is wearied and grieved with our sin. Five different times in the Bible, it's spoken of how God is grieved or God is wearied by our sin. I like how Noah Webster put it, to weary means to fatigue 
or weary oneself with labor. To weary someone is to make them impatience, or to make impatient of continuance. So the same thing over and over and again. It means to harass by anything irksome. That's a fun word, irksome. Do you know it's possible to be irksome to God? That's what it means to weary God. To subdue or to exhaust by fatigue. Another way, we might say it this way, that we are literally, and the people of God in this passage are literally trying God's character. Have you ever used that phrase? You're trying my patience. Well, God has a character. God is a nature. God is love. God is patient. God exhibits long-suffering. And it's literally what God is saying by that statement, you're wearying me. You are testing. You are trying. You are pushing my character and my nature. God was grieved with their choices. God was grieved with their sin. This was a serious accusation. You are wearying me, my people. It's also a a sobering accusation. He says, you've wearied the Lord. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. The Lord, you notice that's all in capital letters. This is Jehovah God. You have wearied, you have tried, you have irked the God of the universe. I I think Isaiah put it best when he said in Isaiah 7, 13, he said, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Kind of a rhetorical question, all right? It's a small thing. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's an issue between men. But wearying God? Oh, that's a different level. That's something completely different altogether. A sobering accusation. So that was the, the sentiment of the accusation from God. And you'll notice immediately the denial of the, the accusation. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? Wherein? And that's not an honest question, I think you understand. Now, that's not a quest for more information. It is a contradiction. It is an accusation against God that he is not being as forthright as he ought to be. And really, case in point, is exactly what's happening. Do you see it? God's saying, you are wearying me with what you are saying. And they say, wherein have we wearied you? Right there. You did it right there. It's exactly what they just did. And this is a pattern that you see, unfortunately, in the book of Malachi. God said, fill in the blank. Yet ye say, fill in the blank. Happens over and over again. In fact, it happens eight different times in this book where they challenge and disrespectfully question God's declaration, God's assessment of where they were spiritually. We've looked at a couple. In chapter 1, God says, I've loved you, yet ye say, wherein have you loved us? Chapter 1, verse 6, God accuses them of despising Him, and they say, how have we despised you? Chapter 1, verse 7, God accuses them of polluting His altar, and they say, how have we polluted you? Chapter 2, verse 14, They're they're questioning God. Why are you rejecting our sacrifice? That's not right. 
Chapter 2, verse 17, the verse we're looking at, how have we wearied you? Chapter 3, verse 7, when God calls them to return, they say, where are we supposed to return to? Chapter 3 and verse 8, God's going to accuse them of robbing him, and they say, how have we robbed God? And then chapter 3 and verse 13, God accuses them of speaking against him, and all they can say is, how have we spoken against you? You see, they had proven time and time again that they were unwilling to hear an honest assessment of their spiritual state. This is something that we have to be very careful with in our own lives. Because if we were to, you know, if I were to ask you and you had to give a public answer, are you willing, are you open to critique and criticism in your life? We all know the answer is, well, yes, I'm open to that. But how often do we shut down any sort of critique or criticism of our spiritual state? It really is a dangerous thing. Because we become the individual with the Limburger cheese stuck underneath our nose, the whole world stinks. And the problem is actually us. Because we have cut off an honest assessment of ourselves. I mean, think about this. God Himself could not convince them of any weakness or error. Now, I can understand when an enemy would come and have an accusation... And whether or not you would receive that, you'd, you'd have to you know, take that with a grain of salt. I understand that. Even with a man, a man can't see your heart. He can't see your real motivations. And so I can even understand objecting to that assessment. But this is God's assessment of them. And they won't hear it. There's always an excuse. There's always a counter. There's always an explanation of why we weren't in the wrong. So we see from, from God's people. We ought to ask ourselves... Do we open ourselves up to challenge or critique? Or do we communicate that we're not interested and so it's not even offered? Or perhaps we shut it down before we even hear it. We're quick with the excuse. We're quick with the explanation. We're quick with, and you know what? After a time, if we even have friends who are close to us in our lives, they just say, Sorry. Sorry for bringing that up. We'll do that again. And unbeknownst to us, we have just cut off a source of wisdom, a source of a perspective that we really need. You've heard of blind spots that all of us have. The blind spot in the, in the, uh, in the realm of having that that, that, that piece of spinach or whatever stuck right between your two front teeth. And everybody sees it, except for you. What's your only hope? Well, if you're married, your only hope is hopefully your spouse. You would kind of... Um, what's your problem? What are you doing? And if you dismiss that, if you cut that off, like, leave me alone. I don't understand what your problem is. Guess what she's going to do? Okay, all right. And now you go around with it there the whole time. And it's not until you get to heaven that God just presents you with a mirror. And you go, the whole time? Yeah, the whole time. Oh. 
God has given us people in our lives that can and often uh, will use the principles of God's Word to expose some things that we need to see. But we'll never get there. We'll never have a relationship like that if we are just immediate to cut it off. I mean, there's no, there, there, there's no quest for more information. They immediately go from accusation of God, we don't see it. We don't know what you're talking about, God. They shut it down. And so, there's no help for them. There's no aid. We ought to be very careful to make sure that we are allowing open and and honest assessment of our spirituality. Husbands and wives, you should have that kind of relationship with your spouse. It's so open that you can, you can expose some things. You can, now, not that you do it in criticism, you do it in, in anger, you do it in frustration. That's not the proper spirit. You understand what I mean. But there ought to be that open relationship. There ought to be some relationships in your life where you, where you allow this to take place. But so many times, we have raged the other person down so that they're afraid of even broaching that subject. They're afraid of even getting close to it because every time it's shut down. So there's an accusation from God. It's immediately denied. But then there is an accusation from the people. And here's where things kind of ratchet up a little bit more. God says, I'm going to tell you how you've wearied me. Because in your hearts, you're questioning my character and my nature. Because they say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or... Where is the God of judgment? You see, the accusation from the people was that God delights in evil. Or maybe a better way to write that would be God delights in the evil. What they were doing is they were looking around and from the vantage point of their little postage stamp nation in in the midst of the, the empires of men, they were looking around and saying, well, they're not God's chosen people. They're not, you know, doing all the things that we're doing. They're not serving the Lord like we are. And God is blessing them. God is delighting in them. He's looking upon evil with delight. The applied attitude is, we're doing good, and God is not delighting or blessing us. They kind of say this, if you want to skip ahead, very similar to chapter 3, verse 14. It says, ye have said, it's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance? and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts. They're saying, it doesn't do any good to serve God. We're serving God, and God is not blessing us for what we're doing. That is what they're saying. God is not blessing me, who clearly deserves it, but He's delighting in, He's blessing others, who clearly don't deserve it. Now tell me there hasn't been a time in your heart, where you haven't had that same exact feeling. God, you're not doing right by me. Now, there's an error in perspective here. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. But sometimes we see that. And sometimes that question becomes an accusation like we see here. Of course, the second part of the accusation is, where is the God of judgment? Where is the God of justice? And again, as we mentioned before, this is a question that many have struggled with, many believers. David in Psalm 73, I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And you remember that chapter, 
God has to take him into the sanctuary. And David says, when I went into the sanctuary, then I understood their end. Oh, I had almost fallen. I had almost slipped. It was tripping me up. But God corrected my perspective. In Habakkuk, the whole, the whole book of Habakkuk is really dealing with that question. How long shall I cry unto thee of violence and, and cry of the wickedness and thou won't save? You're blessing them. You're doing good to them. I don't understand. And God has to correct Habakkuk's perspective. In Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah asks, Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are they happy that deal very treacherously? I don't understand, God. And God has to change their perspective. It's not the question that wearies God. He knows our frame. He knows where we're coming from. But it is the accusative attitude behind the question that wearies God. So we see accusation. And then as chapter 3 opens, we see an answer. An answer from God. Now, we should point out that the arrogance of their question doesn't deserve an answer. All right? They don't deserve an answer, but God chooses to answer them anyway, thinking His loving kindness and His long-suffering. He does answer the question. And I like how chapter one or chapter 3 opens in verse number 1. He simply says, Behold. Behold. Behold means to look. Pay attention. There's something you need to see. God wants them to look. He wants them to change their perspective. There's something wrong in how they are looking at things. This accusation that they're laying at the feet of God, the source of it is because their perspective is wrong. They're looking at things wrong. And the next, four, uh, the next six verses, uh, verses 1 through 6, is God laying out not only what He's going to do in the future, but He's trying to correct that wrong perspective. So He says, behold, look at this. In each of the instances we talked about before, in Psalm 73 and Habakkuk and Jeremiah, God patiently helps to adjust the perspective of His saints. And here in chapter 3, He's doing the same. Because something in the way they're seeing things needs to be changed. And really what's funny is, or what's interesting, not funny, but what's interesting is the answer to, their, to the honest question of where is the God of judgment really could be answered with one word. Jesus. It's the Messiah. And that's basically the answer that he's given. He talks about the messenger of the covenant, a messenger, an angel, like the angel of the Lord who is Jesus. And we understand the fulfillment of the prophecy here in chapter 3 is the person of Jesus. And God answers their accusation against him, their question, where is the God of judgment? He answers it with this statement. He's coming. He is coming. And I think part of their accusation, part of what they're saying here is they're saying we, we're, we're, we're getting tired of the promise that the Messiah is coming. Because all we see is a diminishment of the nation, our nation, your promised, peop- promised people. We don't see a flourishing. We don't see a conquering. We don't see where in the world this Messiah is going to come from. And God counters by saying He is coming. And I think rather sarcastically, in a way, God says He's the one who you seek. He's the one who you delight in. In other words, this is the one who you're saying is not coming. I'm telling you, He's coming. He is coming. 
He points out a couple of things. He points out his preparation. In verse number one, I'll send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. My messenger who prepares the way. That's none other than John the Baptist. And we might not make that connection except for this prophecy is referenced in every single one, all four of the Gospels. And it's referenced by Jesus himself as being John the Baptist. So it's very clear, this is the one. He's the one preparing the way. He's the one that has a fiery message. A fiery message about the judgment of God and the need for repentance. And we see his ministry in the New Testament, how he comes on the scene and he requires fruits, meat for repentance. Yes, he's there baptizing. And that was one of his main functions that God gave him as John the Baptist. He was baptizing him, but he was, he was requiring repentance to the message of judgment. And so we see the Messiah's preparation. We also see the Messiah's presence in verse 1. He says, The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant who ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. He's going to come. He's going to come into his temple. You know, the place that's supposed to be a place of worship for him, and in a place that here in this context, we see corrupt worship going on. When the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come and enter into the temple in his day, there would be corruption going on. This is the place that ought to be reserved for him. That ought to be the place where you would find pure worship, but you find the exact opposite. But he's coming, and he's going to claim that which is rightfully his, his temple. And in case you had any doubt, there's repeated. Behold, he shall come, his presence. But then I think the point that God is driving home here is in verse 2 and 3, and that is his power. His power. Who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Think of a refiner's fire. He mentions in verse 3, purging like gold and silver. Do you know what the melting point of gold is? Well, according to Google, which I did not fact check Google, which I I hope it's right. In order to melt gold to begin the purifying process, you need to have something to heat to 1,948 degrees. Um, That's hot. That's really hot. He mentioned silver. In order to purify silver, you need something to heat to 1,763 degrees. That's hot. We're talking about a fire that is powerful. It is strong. It is effective. Then he mentions a fuller's soap. It's a, it's a launderer. It's someone who's cleaning clothes. And this soap is not, you know, the stuff you see on the shelf, mild and gentle, pleasing in its aroma. This is the old school stuff that it just, it's powerful, man. You don't want don't to breathe in that stuff. You'll lose a couple brain cells. But I mean, that's going to, it's going to do the job. Wow. It's powerful. So much so that God says, okay, you want the Messiah to come. Are you going to be able to stand before him? Can you withstand that heat? Can you, your life, 
withstand that fuller's soap? Now you'll notice that this refining in verse number 3 and verse number 4, now get get the contrast here. They're saying, God, You are not dealing with everyone else. The the evil ones around us. You're blessing them. You're delighting in them. God, we want You to judge them. We want justice for them. And God says, oh, you want justice? Well, I am going to send the Messiah. And guess where He's going to start His business? Verse 3, He shall purify the sons of Levi that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness? Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old? This, is not, this judgment is not directed towards the heathen. It's directed towards God's people and God's priests. God says, I'm going to purify and purge the Levites. And we've seen how much they need it from this book what they were doing, the sacrifices they were offering. He's going to clean that. He's going to clean it up so that therefore in verse 4, there's finally a pleasant offering because right now, it's not a pleasant offering. God's not delighting in it. But you notice where the emphasis is. Can you stand before Him? Because He's coming to judge not everyone else. He's going to start with you. And you'll notice that in verse 5, and I don't necessarily know the significance of this. I'll just point this out. From verse 1 to 4, there's the emphasis that the messenger of the covenant, and of course Jesus being the messenger of the covenant, He's the one that fulfills the the, the covenant with Israel of a Messiah coming, at least to some degree. He's going to fully fulfill that in the future. But He's also the messenger of the the new covenant. All right, Our relationship with God through the the changing of of our hearts when we're born again. So he's the messenger of the covenant. He comes, and the the whole emphasis of the first four verses is he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then in verse 5, it just says, and I will come. Not only is he coming, I am coming. Now we understand that the Trinity, we understand that doctrine that Jesus Christ is, is God, but I think he's trying to emphasize something to his people. Yes, the Messiah is coming, and through Him, I'm coming to you. I'm coming. And you'll notice, I'm coming to you, in verse 5, I will come near to you to judgment. Judgment. Now, what were the people looking for? Where is the God of judgment? They're asking for judgment, but they're asking for judgment for everyone around them, not necessarily for themselves. But God says, you want me to come and judge? Then we're going to have to start with you. The inference here is that underneath that surface level of worship of God, underneath the playing of church, underneath the, 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 the nice suit and tie, underneath all doing everything you're supposed to do, checking every box, dotting every I, crossing every T, under, underneath all of that lay the ugliness of sin. Underneath the veneer which is so very thin, it hides what's underneath. And what's underneath, I think, the point of verse 5 is these are the things that are underneath. I'm going to come to you in judgment, and these are the things I'm going to expose. Sorcery. 
adultery. Of course, he's already done that by exposing the practice of the people. We, we mentioned that already. Lying and deception, that idea of a false witness. Oppressing the, the hireling. That's just someone who has been hired to do a job, an employee. You're not paying him his, his uh, just desserts. Oppression of the widow. Oppression of the fatherless. Oppression of the stranger. Not giving him his due as God has said. And overall, at the end, those that don't fear me. All of this comes from a lack of the fear of God. And God says, I'm coming to you. And we're going to, I'm going to be a swift witness. And the idea of that is that God sees and God knows. And this is not going to be like a, a you know, United States of America trial where you commit the crime and ten years later the, the trial finally happens. Now this is a swift witness. This is an immediate, here's the evidence, you're guilty, end of story. When God's the witness against you, there's no, there's no disparaging the character of that witness. He says, I'm going to be a swift witness, and I'm going to expose all of these things. Is this really what you want? Is this really what you're asking for? You see how he's trying to change their perspective. And I think verse 6 just summarizes everything. And we'll end with this tonight. Not only the accusation and the answer, but also the application. And I think this is the point. There was something significant that they needed to see. Now the application starts in verse 6 with a statement about God's character. I am the Lord. I am Jehovah God. I change not. There's a truth about God's character. He is Lord. He is immutable. Unchangeable. I change not. My character does not change. My mercy does not change. My love does not change. My faithfulness to keep my promises does not change. And because of my character, because of who I am, let me give you a statement about Judah's existence. And that statement is, because I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The reason why the nation of Israel existed in the book of Malachi, and actually in reality still exists to this day, is due to God's commitment to his own character. Now think about the application of that statement. Apart from God's character, the sons of Judah would be consumed. If it weren't for who God is and the fact that he does not change and the fact that he keeps his promises and his covenants, if it weren't for that, the nation of Israel would be consumed. The reason for their existence, past, present, future, the very reason for their existence had nothing to do with them had nothing to do with their goodness. God reminded His people in the book of Lamentations through the prophet Jeremiah, it's of the Lord's mercies, His character, His nature, that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. I am the Lord. I change not. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. 
God is faithful to His promises. We think about this truth, and I think this is what God was trying to help them to see. I think this is the point. The point is the reason they were not experiencing judgment at that very moment was because of God's character, not because of their own goodness. Now think about it, believer, tonight. The reason why we do not experience the judgment of God for our sin is because of God's character, not because of our own goodness. Because if God were to come as the judge and He were to start with me, the same thing would be exposed that was exposed of God's priests. My evil and wicked heart would be open for all to see. I don't want God to come in judgment on me. I need His mercy. I need His compassion. I need His forgiveness. And when my perspective is looking out on everyone else, when my perspective is sitting in judgment on everyone else, I get this attitude, God, why aren't you dealing with everyone else? And the answer is, if I dealt with everyone else, I would have to deal with you. I would have to deal with me. Our only hope, the people of Israel's only hope, was the path of forgiveness that was provided by God Himself. It was not in anything they were doing. And here's the Here's the underlying truth that I think is extremely helpful for us. The people of Israel had an inflated view of themselves, which resulted in a deflated view of God. They looked at themselves in spite of the corruption, which was as clear as the spinach between your two front teeth. It was so obvious, especially to us looking on. In spite of that, they thought, We deserve God's goodness. We deserve for God to to care for us. We deserve for God to deal with everyone else. But if God came to deal with everyone else, He would also have to deal with you. If God dispensed of His long-suffering for everyone else, God would have to dispense of His long-suffering and forgiveness for you. You see, the perspective change they needed was the perspective of themselves. Yes, they needed an eternal perspective. They needed to understand that, you know what, God is going to make things right. And that is a comfort for us as a believer. When we're seriously and honestly questioning, God, I don't understand what's going on. God understands that question. He knows our frame. And He gently, and some of you have experienced this, I've experienced this, the psalmist experienced this, He gently takes us to the house of God, to the Word of God, and we understand, oh, God has everything under control. But when our perspective of ourselves gets to this place that we think that God needs to judge everyone else, and we begin accusing God, why aren't you dealing with them? Why aren't you letting that go? That's not right. When those questions turn into accusations, we need a perspective adjustment on ourselves. We need to look in the mirror 
And God says that there's like a firm firmness here, but it is a correction. I am the Lord. I change not. And if I could paraphrase, that's why you're still here. So don't try my patience, my judgment. Because the only reason you're there is because of my mercy. And I'm being merciful to them. I'm giving space for repentance to them just like I'm giving space for repentance for you. Oh, how we need to get a perspective change on ourselves. We need to get back to that place that we were when we first came to Christ. And we understood, I'm a sinner before God. I deserve for God to, to strike me right down in judgment because of my sin. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I've transgressed God's law. I've rebelled against Him. I've done things my own way. I deserve God's judgment. Do you remember when God brought you to that place? If God never has brought you to that place, you're still lost. Because that's the first step. Understanding your need. But you remember. You remember being at that place. And I think that's where God wants us to be. Not that we are pitying ourselves or walking around with some, you know, woe is me kind of attitude, but it is the understanding. I don't deserve what God has given to me. If we're not careful, we become the people of God who we think, you know what, I deserve God's goodness for me. I deserve God's blessing. I deserve for God to deal with everyone else and not with me. We need a perspective change. The people of God needed a perspective change. And I think oftentimes we need a perspective change. When we get to this point of the questions turning into accusations, challenging God, God is saying to His people, you need to make sure you look in the mirror. Do an assessment. It'll change your accusation. It'll change your feeling. And I think it's helpful for us tonight to look into the perfect law of liberty to see, as in a glass, who we truly are. So we can humbly thank God for His mercy and His grace. And so that we're not quick, like some of the apostles, to call down fire on everyone else. Because we don't understand the spirit that's in our heart. And we take this lesson, allow God to change the perspective of ourselves.